0: Well, because it's not sustainability as a mission. It's just growth. That's Sometimes perpetual growth is not sustainable. Wait, let me change that. All the time, perpetual growth is not sustainable. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, we're going to talk about our economy, bear markets, recessions, crypto crash, what exactly is going on. And in our main segment, we're going to share our conversation with Laurel Whitman, president of the Well Spouse Association, the only nonprofit that provides support specifically for the spouses and partners of people living with chronic illness or disability. And then we'll close out the show, as we always do, with what's on our mind outside of politics, specifically summer.
1: As you know, we have spent a lot of time and energy on the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. That committee is continuing its good work. We're recording today on Monday, June 20th. There will be another hearing tomorrow, June 21st, and then we think the final primetime hearing on Thursday, June 23rd. But it all seems to be a bit fluid, and we're trying to adapt as it adapts. We have been covering the daytime hearings two ways, on Instagram Live and on Twitter. We will have another hot mic watch-along on Thursday You can keep up with all of the information about this through our social channels. We've also been recapping the hearings in detail in our newsletter with lots of links. So if you're missing where you can go back and watch, we have links, we have clips in the newsletter. So go to PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. That will connect you to our socials and to our newsletter, and we hope to see many of you on social media as we watch together tomorrow afternoon. And if we sound different, it is because we
0: are recording together this week. I am at Beth's house while our children, all except Felix, are at Camp Ernst, sleepaway camp together. So we have a lot of uninterrupted time to work and think. And we love being able to record together. We're recording all the news briefs and more to say's together this week. So make sure and check out that if you're in our premium community. And up next, we're going to talk about the economy. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The economy is feeling as emotional as all the rest of us. I feel like that's the high level takeaway. We have a lot going on. Okay, so a convergence of several things. We have entered a bear market. What does that mean? It's a 20% decrease from the high in January. I really appreciated the daily explaining this whole bear market bull market and they said the closest they can explain where these animal terms came from is that bulls gore and pull up and bears claw and pull down. And so it's supposed to signal the direction of the market. I don't know, know how we picked that, but I am fascinated. We also had last week, is probably everyone saw, the Fed announcing that it is raising rates. This is the biggest increase since 1994. They are trying to not just slow down, I think, but shut down inflation. And inflation is real. The Com- Consumer Price Index shows average prices rose. percent over the past year Uh, that's a cold statistic to describe what we are all seeing in our everyday lives with the cost of gas and the cost of food and the cost of all that summer travel and then even things that are supposed to be independent you know bitcoin i feel like was always talked about and described as separate from the market but it is certainly responding um, particularly to the Fed increase. The price of Bitcoin has fallen below 20000 for the first time since December 2020. It even got all the way down to 17800 at one point. So it's lost an enormous amount of value, at least on paper. And so we have all these events converging in a high-level numerical way to describe, I think, what we all feel, which is that the economy is
1: going through some things. And it's going some it's going through some things all over the world. Mm-hmm. This is not a uniquely American phenomenon. As we've talked about a million times here, there are so many different reasons all of this is happening, and it's hard to isolate any of them. A war in Ukraine, the pandemic, supply chain factors, natural disasters. There are lots of reasons, and that makes it a complicated problem to tackle, and I also think that we're just living through a very transitional time in terms of technology, in terms of what people want to be doing with their time. It feels cliche at this point to talk about the great resignation and the labor shortage, but these are still new issues that we are sorting out the effects of and and will be for a long time, and that doesn't mean I don't say any of that to say, well, there should be no pressure on policymakers. I think there should be tremendous pressure on policymakers to be responding to these issues. I just don't think there's one type of response or that any any response is going to be effective very quickly.
0: Ezra Klein had financial journalist Rana Fruhar on his show, and she described um, what's happening right now as the everything bubble bursting And to me, I really appreciate this conversation because it feels like we spend a lot of time trying to describe sort of the immediate history, right? We're really focused on the supply chains and the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. It's like our our vision with the economy and what's happening is so short, unless we're just saying this is the worst it's been since 1970, or this is the biggest increase since 1994. And what I really appreciate about their conversation and something I think we've talked about and which I think about all the time is that the underlying assumption just feels like something's wrong with the economy if it's not in perpetual growth. Well, perpetual growth is cancer. It's like we had to have correction. We all knew that there was an enormous amount of money sloshing around for way longer than is normal. It's like, I feel like that's getting lost. I feel like there's no language around the correction. And I think it's because anything that happens in the economy has so much impact and so much it causes a lot of pain for a lot of people. But I don't really feel like that's what we're centering. We're centering the pain of like stockholders and CEOs, not centering the pain of people on the bottom end of the economic ladder. And the truth is like perpetual growth that leaves a lot of people behind that creates the circumstances in which painful corrections are necessary also create that kind of pain. It just depends on what timeline you're examining. And I feel like whenever we talk about the economy, the timeline is jacked and never sort of proportional or realistic or even wise in the way we talk about it.
1: I remember working as a young lawyer right out of law school. So 2007, 2008, 2009, as the economy is in free fall. And all of these institutions that seemed unflappable are, are suddenly, like, hitting the bankruptcy courts. And that was the area that I was working in, corporate bankruptcy. And I remember reading about derivatives and all the things that had gotten us there and, and realizing, well, no wonder this has come apart. Because it, at some point, everything became unreal. Mm-hmm. And I thought, we won't make that mistake again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then as you look back, especially over the past couple of years where there were tremendous amounts of wealth being funneled into NFTs and meme stocks, it I feel like we almost squandered the lessons of the last recession and squandered the opportunities that we had when there were tremendous amounts of capital looking for places to go that we didn't invest that money very wisely. It continued to be an individual's game. And I'm curious what will be written about this time when we're years out and have some perspective on it. And so I agree with you that we can't be in that state of perpetual growth because when we are, we don't make good choices. Uh -uh. And I also don't want to say that in a way that ignores the pain that it causes when the economy. Constricts for those of us who've never had enormous amounts of capital to to just play with.
0: Yeah, I mean, they described it as a saccharine economy, and that sounds right to me. And I think the problem with conversations about the economy is the same problem we have in conversations about our political parties. Are we talking about the people in power and the leaders and the people who benefit from the system? Are we talking about the people who prop up the system who are like sort of the the, the mass participants? Are we talking about Mitch McConnell? Are we talking about voters? Are we talking about Tim Cook? Are we talking about, you know, people who work minimum wage jobs at fast food? How are we possibly supposed to have a conversation about quote unquote the economy if we don't delineate and define which groups we're talking about? And so when I'm talking about a saccharine economy, you believe I'm talking about Tim Cook. And I think it goes even further back than like NFTs, this sort of you know, stock buyback, just enormous amounts of capital. I read a story about the new CEO at Amazon and how, you know, this sort of Jeff Bezos error is over. And it's like, well, we thought Jeff Bezos was a genius and I don't want to take some of Jeff Bezos's impact and vision away from him, but it is a different thing to be this sort of big thinking transformational CEO when there's just money everywhere. When you can borrow massive amounts of money for tiny interest rates then what this new CEO is facing, where you've got rising interest rates and a lot of increasing pressures from a lot of angles. It's like, well, well yeah. And I hope we look back and see that maybe what we saw is transformational. It was a sugar high. It was that manic energy. And I don't think we make great decisions during those cycles. We don't build, we don't invest at the corporate level, at the institutional level, at the government level. I was so struck by this conversation on Ezra Klein Show because they described Harvard as a hedge fund because it just has so much money. It's like corporations become hedge funds because really what you're doing is you're not making iPhone. You're trying to decide what to do with these billions of dollars in corporate funds and you're really not educating the you know a couple thousand students at your university you're trying what to decide what to do with a multi-billion dollar endowment and it's just all this money was everywhere and instead of spending time thinking about like what does that mean it's like every piece of financial reporting is it's bad it's the growth, there's not enough growth. There's coming a recession. And I was so struck listening to The Daily where they kept saying, no one wants a recession. And I wanted to say, well, right, no one wants a recession, but should there be a conversation about what our economy needs instead of only what we want in this scenario? And again, I'm talking about the, the big players, the power players, the people who have, who benefit from the system Um, Because I do think you have to have two separate conversations about the impact at the bottom. But I do think like, I mean, you need different conversations and also they're connected. Because if the big players are exploiting the system um, and this sort of manic sugar high energy, obviously it's going to have impact to people at the very bottom of the economic ladder.
1: I am very guilty of the thing I'm about to describe. So I'm not sitting on high describing this phenomenon. I think that there comes a point in almost any organization, whether it's for profit or not, where the sustainability of the organization becomes the controlling ethos instead of the mission, Mm. where it is we must preserve these billions of dollars in some way and keep them making more and more money for us because we want this to last forever. And I think what we've lost is a sense that some things aren't supposed to last forever. Some things are supposed to meet a moment and then become something else, or kind of die off and something else takes its place. And it's really hard when you see yourself as a fiduciary to an entity to think maybe this entity isn't supposed to last forever. And maybe we should be spending down this endowment to really fulfill our mission right now, instead of working to only preserve it so that we can do this perpetually into the future. I would argue this is what's wrong with you know, the Republican Party right now, too. Mm. There is this sense of just sustainability, sustainability, instead of at what point do we say, well, what is all this for? What are we doing? And that's the other thing that I keep thinking about when I hear people say, well, the economy is more important than X, Y, or Z political story. Mm-hmm. It is not separate. We are unprepared, as I see it, in healthcare for a post-Roe world where state legislatures get way in the business of OBGYNs. I don't think our healthcare infrastructure is ready for that. And that impacts the economy in a massive way. We are unprepared for a world in which every election in the United States is followed by political violence. Mm -hmm. That affects the economy in a major way. And we could go on forever, but when people say like, well, I'm not going to watch. It's so privileged of you to ask people to watch the January 6 hearings because of gas prices. Friend, those things are married. Those ideas go together in such a cohesive way, which is why all of it's hard to untangle going back to what I said at the beginning. There's not one cause for why the economy is suffering right now. And there's not going to be one solution. And you cannot isolate the variables for your attention the way that we kind of want to ask each other to.
0: Well, because it's not sustainability as a mission. It's just growth. That's Sometimes perpetual growth is not sustainable. Wait, let me change that. All the time, perpetual growth is not sustainable. In our economy, in an organization, I was so struck by the New York Times reporting on Jack Welch and his at his time at GE and his impact on sort of corporate philosophy and this like financialization that the, the corporate structure was only meant to grow the bottom line, to grow the finances, that the, it you lost this idea of the mission being like the product or the service or the employees. It was just the dollar amount, and I think that that pure financialization outlook has infected so many things, and what including the way we think about the economy. And I can hear people being like, "You dumb, dumb." lady like you're talking are you trying to convince me that the economy shouldn't just be about finances but yeah i am trying to convince you about that because that isn't the only thing the economy the economy is the manifestation um through a dollar amount of everything that's happening in our culture and our politics and our governance even our personal lives depending on who you are and so i just think that you know when we when we shrink it down and we make it about the growth the these like Percentages, these numbers, and we lose that bigger picture, and we can't see the weirdness of what's happening, and we miss those broader impacts. Just like you were saying, like, and and also, you know, I can, I can feel a repulsion, like a paradoxical repulsion of like, I don't want to talk about the financial impact of Roe v. Wade, right? Like, I both, I both want us to expand our view of the economy, and also not make everything about. Finances. I just want you know both sides of this coin to be more holistic because you know to something you mentioned earlier today, and to just continue to make this the Ezra Khan podcast. The he wrote an editorial that was like, "This is a weird time," and I think that that's what I'm like pushing up against. Like it's just it's weird out there, man. Everything's changing. I will read a story. I mean, he cited the Google engineer that felt like the AI that they were working on had gained sentience, and I felt. I felt my body go, "Uh uh-huh. Like, I just just kind of felt this sense of like, here we go, we're on this road that none of us really want to look at. I I was reading Laura Tremaine's book and she has this great thing where she talks about lean into the things you want to skip past. And it's like, we're so bad at that in America. And I feel like we are living in the culmination of all the things we have perpetually wanted to skip past. We wanted to skip past the fact that It was a weird economy where there was so much growth that was unsustainable. We wanted to skip past the long-term impact of the pandemic. We wanted to skip past um, the distrust in our governing institutions. We just, we want to like speed past it or take this sort of surface level analysis. And it's all culminating in this way where it feels like every story, every headline is just building in this like, you cannot ignore this any longer
1: (laughs) narrative. I think that's exactly it. And something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially since I read the the first reporting about that AI, is just what does it mean to be sentient? Mm. I'm reading a book about that that is just called Sentience, and it explores the animal kingdom, and it's fascinating. And I can't know for all of us what it means to be sentient, but I can try to work on an answer to that question for me. I can't know for all of us whether the global economy has failed and we need to go more regional and what that means. I can't know for all of us what a dollar represents, right? But I can try to know for me. And I think that's why I, not to be a commercial for it, but I love Laura's book, share your stuff. I'll go first because it kind of calls you back to those fundamentals. How would you answer this question? What is important to you about this thing? I just, that's the best I know how to do in a situation where I have very little power and influence. I'm not at Davos, you know. Mm. I hope the folks at Davos are thinking, what does it mean to be sentient? And, like, what are the ethics of all these things that our money is creating? But I can just do it in my little life and try to know the best I can and and ask policymakers to care about the impact of the gas prices and the grocery prices and the logistical impediments to getting goods and services moving around the world and getting enough medicine ordered for people. And, you know, these the economy is the hardest thing that we talk about because we have yeah. the least influence over it in so many ways And the only way we know how to exercise any control, I think, is to say, well, like you should never order anything from this company or go to this restaurant or drive this kind of car. And that is just missing it. That's just missing it. Not that our individual actions have no impact, but that I think the I think we can't fully understand the impact of those individual actions without at least spending some time on like the values underneath all of it.
0: And so we're going to pivot now, but we think it's relevant. We're going to share our conversation with Laurel Whitman, who became president of the Well Spouse Association's board in September 2021. Her husband of 17 years, Eduardo, was diagnosed with MS in 1998 at the age of 24, and his disease course has been very aggressive. He has needed 24-hour care for years. And when Laurel became president of the board, she reached out to us to see if we'd like to have a conversation about the work she does and the way her husband's illness has impacted her life. And we were, of course, delighted to talk to her and excited to share a conversation with all of you because we do think these conversations about care and friendship like we had with Jennifer Sr. have a bigger macro impact.
1: It is especially important to me to have this conversation with Laurel my mother has a serious chronic condition and I have seen firsthand the way that that has changed her life and our family's lives and her marriage with my dad. I'm sure I don't see even a tiny percentage of that, but I see enough to know how significant it is. And when I think about things like the January 6th hearing, the economy, all these macro issues, going back to our conversation with Jennifer senior, I think our fundamental happiness and the relationships that we have and the support we have to just get through the day matter a lot. And it is clear everywhere you look that we do not have enough support for people who are living with lifelong medical needs, medical needs that often our systems cannot address well. So I really appreciated this discussion with Laurel and hope that you'll find it valuable too. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jane has you covered. We've talked about Olive & June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though is that Olive & June each season is coming out with new colors and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. Just
0: finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. dot com slash pantsuit.
1: Laurel, we're so happy that you're here with us. I wondered if you would mind to tell people a little bit about yourself and about the organization that you lead.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. So my name is Laurel Whitman, and I am the president of the board of the Well Spouse Association. We are the only nonprofit that is set up for the partners and spouses of people with chronic illness and disability. Um, my tenure started about three months ago, so I'm still getting my, my feet underneath me. But it's been it's been exciting so far, and it's an important organization for people who are in situations like mine. So my husband has advanced MS. Um, he was diagnosed very young, and I knew when we got married that he had MS, but it progressed pretty rapidly, and I found myself quite alone. And so finding Well Spouse was really life-changing for me, and I'm excited to be able to give back.
1: That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about WellSpouse, how it began, who all it serves? When I read the description, I thought, what a broad category of people this must support. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah.
2: So the organization itself is about 34 years old. It was founded by a woman whose situation was not unlike mine. She was an author um, and wrote a book about her experiences as the partner of somebody who had MS. Um, This was of course back before the internet was a thing. And so she sent her book out into the world and she had a page in the back of it where it said, if you're also in this situation, send me a postcard and we'll connect. And people did. And so they found her. Yeah. And a group was convened. And this This group of 10 people met in Pennsylvania and put together what has become well Spouse.
1: That's amazing. And how do
0: you, as an organization, think about this large spectrum of, you know, everyone who might have a spouse that has, you know, chronic MS and needs a very high level of assistance and care to someone maybe just tackling a difficult diagnosis that hasn't Mm -hmm. dramatically affected life yet, maybe just increased fatigue. Beth, I know you've Mm -hmm. spoken a lot about having fibromyalgia and how that affected Mm -hmm. your relationship. All the way, I was thinking to like, truthfully, spouses dealing with like Mm -hmm. someone with long COVID or maybe just an intense time with COVID. Like there's just this incredible spectrum of experiences around caregiving. And I'm wondering how your organization thinks about that.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, one place I like to start is talking a little bit about the language. You know, we obviously call ourselves the Well Spouse Association. Um, it doesn't mean that we ourselves are well. It doesn't mean, mm. you know, that we're only for spouses. We are for people who are in partnered relationships because we think there are commonalities, and that's really what brings us together. Is there's a lot that, you know, no matter what your disease or your disability is, there's a lot of commonalities that we face in the emotions and in the financial impacts of the disease. Um, you know, when the disease is progressive, kind of the changes that come along with that along the way. So that's really where we find, um, you know, we, we find we can bring people together in a meaningful way like is finding that. those commonalities. Speaking
1: of the language, is caregiving a word that you embrace or how do you how do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had some
2: Twitter discussion on this recently, and it's a great question, too. And a lot of people don't identify as caregivers. Right. I know for years I didn't feel like I was a caregiver because, you know, my husband was still working and he was still relatively independent. and. You know, I associated it in my head with something that that did become true for us, but doesn't become true for everyone. Um, so there is a whole spectrum of care, but we really do think, you know, people who are attending doctor appointments with their partner in the early stages of disease, that's a type of caregiving. Um, it's a, a way of being there. Um, you know, we try and be pretty inclusive with the language, but that is, it's an interesting discussion that's taking place now. What does it mean, you know, to be a caregiver, to be a care recipient? How does, you know, the the language I think is really interesting and it's something a lot of us are focused on.
1: Well, I ask because I have thought quite a bit, you know, Sarah mentioned that I have fibromyalgia and it was very intense Mm -hmm. and a really difficult Mm -hmm. part of our marriage for a while until I kind of found some Mm -hmm. supportive treatments and practices. Mm -hmm. I hope now that it's something that my husband doesn't have to think about very often. But in the time when he was providing some care for me, I thought, how is there a reciprocity in our relationship when we' when we're navigating this dynamic? Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see where mm-hmm. having a, a group of people in similar situations or even quite different situations might be illuminating around like what are our, what are our obligations to right. one another through something like this?
2: Right. Yeah, it's a great question and a great thing to think about and a difficult thing, right? A lot of us, I think, when we're in the partner situation, your husband's shoes, we don't want to put another burden on our partner, you know, and our emotions can become part of that, that burden. So it's really helpful to have this place to go that, um, you know, to, to have support where you can kind of freely unload all of that <laughs> and then go home in kind of a different frame of mind and to be more present than in your relationship and, and not bring those burdens in. There's this theory, I guess it's called the ring theory. And it really resonated with me. And it's the idea that the person with the disease is kind of in the middle of this circle. And then there are concentric circles that go out from there. And the partner is not in that circle. You know, and the idea is Mm -hmm. you, you project emotions out and you provide support in. So you know, the partners is helping to protect the person in the middle and then your families hopefully are around you to protect you and the person, you know, that resonated with me. And so we're a way of helping to kind of dump the emotions out.
1: (laughs) Well, does it, I mean, do you think of it as you come to the Well Spouse Association to be the center of your circle for a minute? Because I mean, that experience of of having a partnership Mm -hmm. um, often in a different light than you, than you expected. I think is is right. its own circle in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It's um, it is a place, and it's hopefully a safe place to come and and wrestle with really important topics. You know, what does intimacy look like when your relationship changes? What does autonomy look like when your relationship changes? Um, and you know, it's nobody's fault. Disease and disability just kind of do this, you know. And that's mm-hmm. it's hard to know where you where to put some of the anger that comes up with some of that, you know. And we want to be a safe place where people can go and first recognize those emotions because that's really the first step. A lot of people come and they're, they don't recognize what they're feeling. They just know they're not sleeping well and they're having panic mm. attacks. And, <laughs> you know, they're lashing out at their partner in ways that they don't want to. Um, and we're like, yes, that's because that's depression and that's anxiety. <laughs> and you're feeling grief. That's what grief looks like. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's helping to put a language around some of that. And then, and then you can start to wrestle with it. And then hopefully you get to a place
0: of acceptance. I'm wondering as you work with people on these commonalities and you learn to recognize um, all these feelings and struggles and grief surrounding the relationship with your partner, how that affects your other relationships? Like how how does (laughs) this flow out? How does this carry over into other parts of your life? Yeah,
2: totally. So relationships often change. We do spend a a fair bit of time in our support group meetings talking about, you know, family members who aren't supporting us in the way that we hope that they would, even if they love the person. Sometimes they just, they can't handle, you know, whatever the illness is. It's hard for them to see the, um, the person with the illness in that, that situation. Um, we talk a lot about friends that disappear, you know, and I, I try Mm -hmm. to bring some, I'll use your word. I try to bring grace to it because I know that this is a difficult situation for everyone. Um, but it, it can definitely become then a burden on the well spouse to have to reach out and ask for the things that they need. You know, it's hard to ask for, for help and to be vulnerable and to say that you aren't getting what you need from somebody. And, and unfortunately, when, when people start to disappear, you know, you want to have some of those discussions. We talk about how you can have them. And, and we also talk about kind of when to cut your losses sometimes, you know, that mm. this just isn't a relationship that is going to support what you're looking for. You know, where else can you go for that
0: kind of support? Well, and I'm also wondering beyond how it negatively affects yeah. your relationships. Is there like any how you, here? What you, <laughs> Yeah, what you learn, like when you learn to recognize those emotions and you learn to find support and you learn yeah. to find language, like I imagine it doesn't just affect this, the partner relationship, but mm-hmm. it affects other relationships as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I find myself... And I've been at this, you know, fairly long time, that I have more patience uh in all of my relationships, and I have a lower threshold for um, you know, small things upsetting me <laughs> because I've wrestled yes. with some really big things, which is beneficial. Um, you know, and I find too that I'm I love this one. I would never give this one up. I'm really able to sit with people who are in pain and not mm. try and fix what is upsetting them, you know, and this is true. I love how you said
0: that. I love how you said, I would never give that. Yeah. Beautiful.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a gift to be able to do that and to give that to somebody, you know, to really make them feel heard. Um, so I, I, it makes me tear up too. It's, I think it's, that's a really important, um, a really important piece of what we can do as a community.
1: How do you develop that sense of I'm sitting with your pain, not trying to fix it? How do you avoid uh, taking on everything of your spouse's as your own? Yeah, um, I I worry about that in situations, yeah. you know, that that I see. I just think there's a um, invitation to selflessness that's unsustainable.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It. It. You have to be careful not to be a martyr, even when you know all the even when that feels like the right decision, I think, or the right set of choices to make. Um, yeah, it's, you know, other people have taught me how to do this because they gave me the gift of being heard and being listened to and, and being able to speak my story. That's how I learned how to do it with other people. And that's, that's because of Wells Pass. It wasn't because of my, you know, my work or, and it, You know, my family was struggling because this is their son-in-law. This is their brother. This is their son. You know, it was something that would be hard for them to give. But, you know, the the well spoused community allows you to get a little bit of distance, I think, from it. And then that's that's a piece of it. I think that's what makes it hard for other relationships is it's hard to get the distance you need to be that kind of neutral support and listen to somebody without judgment.
1: I noticed that you used the word acceptance earlier and I think a whole lot of loving any person is growing at your capacity for acceptance. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. wonder when you are kind of observing best practices and learning from others in Well Spouse, what do you hear mm-hmm. about relationships in terms of being able to define them outside of, of the role that care plays? Well,
2: you know, there's. I see tremendous capacity for love, which sounds Mm. obvious, but, you know, I think there's a tendency in real life to, to talk about how difficult things are. Right. And, and the kind of love of sitting in a hospital room with somebody while they sleep for hours and hours and hours, you know, and that's something that seems very normal to a lot of us. Um, that's really amazing. And there is, there is a selflessness to it, you know, of, of being, being present for people um, in that, in that kind of way, you know, and this is really, this is, you know, most of us I think make wedding vows, right. And this is really putting wedding vows to the test and, Mm -hmm. and not everyone, you know, sees them the same way and feels them the same way. But for a lot of us, you know, having the kind of resources that let us keep showing up day after day, I think is really um, it's a special thing.
0: I wonder when you say that a lot of caregiving revolves around relationships that are not a choice, mm-hmm. parent to child or child to parent. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, well spouse serves people that it is a, a choice because yeah. some people make different choices. <laughs> yeah. Some people, you know, yeah, I, I'll never forget reading a statistic once that talked about how common it is mm-hmm. for women who get sick for their husbands to leave. leave. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how that's affected your thinking, like how you feel about the people that make a different choice or how you think about the role of choice in your decision and how you talk about that in Well Spouse. Yeah, no,
2: it's, you know, I think I would answer and say that a lot of people in Well Spouse, I think what comes through is it doesn't always feel like a choice, even though it is. These these are people who who do take the commitments they've made very seriously. Um, Mm. Sometimes that that can go even farther than it should. Maybe, you know, there are people who are in relationships that they would have otherwise left, but for the illness, you know, but they don't want to be the person who leaves a partner who can't, you know, who can't provide for themselves or is an independent, Mm. even if they're abusive, you know, that's a topic we talk about. in groups. You know, that's, that's heavy stuff. I don't have answers for it. All I can do is be there to, you know, listen to somebody and hold their hand for that. I, you know, I don't, I can't tell you to leave. I can't tell you to stay. I I don't know what the answer is, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's some of that, that, you know, that work we're trying to do is is help people figure that out kind of for themselves.
1: What would you like to see in terms of societal support for families like the families served by Well Spouse that isn't there today?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there are some obvious ones around, you know, the financial impacts of people in our situation. That is one of the ways that uh, spousal caregiving is a little different from other types of caregiving because, you know, when you marry your, or are partnered, you often have two incomes providing support for a, a certain life you're living. You often lose the person who has the illness, who is no longer able to work. And then we often have to leave the workforce as well. So the financial impacts, mm-hmm. you know, I can't not mention that right up front. That's an obvious one, but it's an important one. I think people also want to help, but the ways that they help sometimes are a little tough for us to hear. Um, you know, I'll, I'll bring up self care. Self care is a little bit of a loaded term in our community, I find, mm. because we all know we are supposed to be doing it, right? And we're supposed to take breaks and get away and that sort of thing. But when you think about, for instance, some of our members may not leave their house for years on end. They literally cannot get away to walk for 10 minutes because they've got a spouse who wanders or, you know, turns on the stove and burn down the house and can't, you know, you can't get aids to, you know, so then hearing somebody in a good natured way say, you need to take 15 minutes for yourself can sound really hollow. Um, Mm. And that's not anybody's fault. It's just, um, there's a great quote and I I need to attribute it, but it was the paraphrase of it is, if we're preaching self-care to people when they really need community care, then we're letting them down. It's one more way. Oh, that's so good. I love that. It resonated like that when I read that, it's like that's why I don't like it when people tell me to to do self-care, you know? Um, And that's, that's great. Yeah. So I think, you know, the community can, you know, if your loved one is in this situation, any kind of caregiving, you know, ask how you can take a burden off their plate to let them do that. Can you go to the house for half an hour and just sit there, you know, so that they can run out and run to the bank or get a manicure or, you know, a weekend away. (laughs) Um, I think there really needs to be a trade, you know, to make that self-care possible. We all know we need to do it. You know, we all know we need a healthy diet. We need to exercise, you know, we all know that, but help us get there and help us make time for it.
1: And do you mind to just give us some tips, uh, practically, if I have a dear friend whose partner just got a diagnosis that is going to shift things for them, mm-hmm. how can I best yeah. get them connected to Well Spouse and then also show up for them as a friend?
2: Yeah, so connecting to Well Spouse, like, literally, you can go to our website, we have um, all of our support group meetings are listed there on our map and our calendar. Uh, we run 20 of those a month and we you know, we have a lot of spread, mostly on the coast at this point, but we also have a couple of national groups. We have a, a younger well-spouse group, for instance, that's for people who are, you know, in the earlier stages of life and dealing with children and work, that sort of thing. Um, we have online resources that, um, you know, support groups on Facebook and Reddit. And um, so we're trying to be easier to find. You know, the tips from early in the disease, I think back to when, you know, I first got together with my husband and his disability was starting to progress you know, there's a tendency to rush in and do a lot of research and try and come up with a a cure or a fix. And I understand that. And I did that. And I wasn't ready for support groups, you know, early on, I wasn't ready to hear what it could be like. Um, There's always a cure right around the corner. If you can push back against that urge just a little bit, and maybe that's a way a family member can help, you know, is, is to help them corral some of that research. But I think you know, you really need to sit with some of the emotions around being diagnosed and the losses that may come and will come over time um, and not rush again to fix things, right? That's kind of an urge to fix things and make them go back to the way Mm. they were. But there isn't, that before doesn't exist anymore, you know? Mm. And then the other tip I would give is to help them acknowledge the grief that comes along the way, especially with progressive disease. You know, my husband's progression was the loss of his working life, the loss of his independence, the loss of his ability to walk, you know, then the loss of his ability to literally do anything. And I didn't do a good job of marking all those losses because Mm. they're hard, you know, and they're overwhelming. And so if you can find a way to to sit with those emotions and channel them more productively than (laughs) panic attacks and anxiety like I did. Um, You know, I think you'll be ahead of the curve on getting to that place of acceptance that, you know, you want to get to, I think.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that in your journey and for being a part of Will Spouse and for all the work and support that you give. I think it is invaluable.
2: Thank you for having me. I was glad to be
1: here. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that.
0: Thank you to Laurel for talking with us and for reaching out to us. I wanted to put a broad theme on our conversation outside politics today, Beth, but I think it's fair to say we just want to talk about yesterday, Okay, Um, which is when we dropped our kids off at summer camp and went to our first concert of the summer. Well, not yours. I guess Garth Brooks was your first official concert of the summer. This is my first official concert of the summer.
1: I mean, it was technically spring when we saw Garth. I was a little chilly. It rained on us the whole time. So we could make this the summer kickoff.
0: So we dropped our kids off at sleepaway camp, all but Felix, who is heading to diabetes camp later this week. And I think the main takeaway for all of us is that we're just jealous.
1: Yes. Uh, Chad said this first and I heard it and thought that's correct. He told the girls, I'm just jealous. I want to go be away from phones and the internet for a week and away from work and just doing fun activities and games and learning new things and sitting by a fire and talking about stuff that's important. How amazing does that sound?
0: Swimming. There's a slide into the lake. They have these circular kayaks that look super fun and a brand new ropes course. I was made... For scheduled activities. Like this is the life I should live. I should be perpetually at camp where someone is telling me like, this is the schedule of events today. It, it just feels like a key in my heart. I love it so much. And you don't get a lot of opportunities like that as an adult. So yeah, I'm super, I think jealous. I think they're going to have the most amazing time. This is a very well run camp. It is. I'm already so impressed with sort of just the, all the processes they have um, set up even like sending this first email the first night. I was like, "Here's a helpful article for um, missing your child. Like, <laughs> please don't spend all your emails telling them how much you miss them. Uh, we need them to settle in and not be too homesick." It's it's incredible.
1: So this is the first sleepaway camp that either of my kids have done. Is that true for yours too? No, Griffin okay. has
0: been to I believe three sleepaway camps. He did tell me the other day that he cried every night at one of them, which I did not know. But he said it was not because he was homesick. It was because he likes an early he's like, because you trained me to like a good early dependable bedtime and everybody was staying up late every night, which I thought was hilarious. But uh this is Amos's first sleepaway camp.
1: Well it's the first for both of my daughters and Ellen had no questions about that. As you heard on the podcast, she was excited to be away from us. Mm Jane had lots of thoughts about it. Jane is much more introverted like I am. It is a big part of Jane's identity that she is introverted. She Mm -hmm. likes to tell you about that. I let her lead this conversation. But when she brought it up, I told her that I had a hard time at my first sleepaway camp. I wanted to come home. My parents would not let me. I am so grateful that my parents did not let me come home. And I told Jane, I've missed out on a lot of things in life that are so much fun Mm -hmm. because I've told myself that I couldn't handle the discomfort of them. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that for her. And I think something like summer camp, even though it's a lot for someone who's introverted, um, still has all these moments where you can take a walk in nature and just... You know, find that recharge that you need from a little bit of quiet. I don't want her to believe that introvert means I can't stand to be around other people for long periods of time. Because you do you just, you would miss so much when that's the headspace that you keep yourself in.
0: I don't really know what introvert and extrovert means anymore. I'm just going to be honest. Like, my kids are such a weird mix of both. I'm a weird mix of both. I'm, I'm if I'm probably being all the way honest, I'm kind of ready to abandon those two terms. Amos... I was like, I don't want to do the high five line. I don't like attention. I was like, it's not attention if all 500 kids are participating in the high five line, Amos. But he's also like, absolutely my friendliest kid and will walk up to anybody. He's definitely going to live his best life at summer camp. But, you know, Griffin is tough and he like knows he's sort of particular and kind of embraces it and doesn't let it get to him. I'm not really, I'm not even really worried about Felix and he's little. I don't, I didn't send any of mine away at sleeping camp this young. I think Nicholas a little bit thinks we're crazy, but my boys like, That I think they're just going to love it. Nobody had questions. They didn't even seem that concerned. Everybody was like, catch on the flip side. This is going to be great. And Amos and Griffin are going to a directly, directly, not even through our home to another sleepaway camp next week. So we're like in deep summer camp territory here.
1: Well, the camp director has focused so much on how important it is for them to have a chance to be independent Mm -hmm. and how this is about building life skills and confidence and an identity away from the influence of screens and peers and TikToks and group texts. And I am I am for that. And I just feel really lucky that we get the chance to let our kids do this.
0: Yeah, I'm so grateful. So on our first night away, we went to see Train. Train. With Blues Traveler and Jewel opening for them, and then on Tuesday night, we're going to go see the Chicks. I thought that Blues Traveler and Jewel were incredible. I am not a huge Train fan. I was impressed by their hustle. I have never seen a band work so hard at entertaining the audience. Through t-shirts, took selfies with people's cameras. There was confetti. There were streamers. There were volleyballs. There were multiple covers mixed into some of their most popular songs. I've never seen that level of hustle at a concert. It was intense.
1: They were beach balls, not volleyballs. I want That's to say I mean, it wasn't yeah. a dangerous situation. I've said that
0: like three times. No, beach balls.
1: <laughs> I love to go see Train again, not because I'm some big fan of their music, because as you noted, it's a little one note with well, Train. If you have
0: heard one Train song, you have heard all. Of
1: I mean, the maybe train if songs. you've heard two. If you've heard like an two. upbeat and a downbeat and a, a, and a you ballad, got it. You, got it. you got it. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, you can tell they love to perform. They just love doing this. And they put on a fun show. We went to Riverbend Music Center in Cincinnati, which is one of my favorite places to see music. You're right on the river, as the name would suggest. (laughs) There's a big lawn area. There's open air amphitheater that we sat in and it's just lovely. I just think it's a fun way to spend a summer evening. There's really nothing I would rather do on a summer evening than sit outside and listen to bands. And then Jewel was there and she was I incredible. and now we're friends with her. Have had Jewel in my heart mm-hmm. since I was a teenager. I loved her so much. I wore out my CD of Pieces of You. Love it. Um, and so seeing her, I've I've seen her at Riverbend before. I saw her there the first time when oh, I was that's in high what school. I was
0: wondering if you'd seen her in concert before. Okay.
1: Yeah, and, and she's amazing. And I just think she's getting better and better with age. I she's agree. just in the fullest expression of her jewelness now.
0: I mean, I liked her. I was more a Cheryl Crow person. I definitely brought bought her poetry book. I thought her voice had much more depth and texture, and not in a like sloppy way, but in a tightly controlled, incredibly impactful way. I thought her performance was very impressive. She also wore a custom jumpsuit that I'm I'm going to need to get one of those for myself. It was so incredible. She looked incredible.
1: Um, your, she was great. Your version has to be the Kentucky version. Did you see that it was all Alaska stuff? Ugh. It was the eagles and the constellation and the I flowers all one. from Alaska. I must have one. Yeah. And
0: also she shared her Insta stories twice. So we are friends now and we are going to try to get her on our show. So
1: just putting it into the universe. In summary, we would like to have Jewel here
0: now and yeah and i love summer concerts we have the chicks on saturday this will be the seventh time i have seen the chicks live because i'm a very dedicated fan i've seen them on every single tour and then the rest of my summer is very it is the summer of brandy carlisle i am seeing her twice on tour um because i was concerned i might be at a town for one of them so i bought two tickets just to be safe and then we're seeing the Judds technically in October outside the summer concert series, but relevant because now Winona has got all these people coming to support her after the devastating loss of her mother, and Naomi. And like the top headliner as like special guest is Brandy Carlisle. So I'm going to see a lot of Brandy Carlisle this summer. And that is the way I like it.
1: I have a connective thread between summer camp and the concerts. Okay. So when I saw Jewel the first time, I was a senior in high school. My parents let me and my friend John, who I met at a summer camp,
0: Love
1: it. who was who lived in a, like, a close-by county, they let the two of us drive together to Cincinnati by oh, ourselves wow. far. as high school seniors and go to this concert and drive home together. And I bet they thought they had lost their minds that we did that. I remember mom being really worried and being relieved when I got home. It was one of the best experiences I have ever had. That level of independence, getting to go do something really special, getting to do it with my friend who I didn't get to see very often. It was I cannot think of memories that I treasure more than that one. So uh, in the moments when we think, what have we done by letting our kids go out there in the world? I hope that we're I hope we're inviting them into those kinds of memories.
0: Concerts are so special, especially summer concerts outside. I mean, if you meet somebody new and you're trying to connect with them, just like, what's your best concert? Who have you seen the most in concert? It's just an endless conversation. And they're so interesting to hear like, well, this artist did this and it was so fascinating or I'll never forget this moment with this group or band. We had a little bit of that conversation last night. And I I just love it. I think that's such a special experience. Now I will say this. I am a concert person, but I'm not a festival person. Blues Traveler did a little bit of jamming not for me.
1: You don't want to hear somebody just go on and on. I really don't.
0: It's why I've never seen Dave Matthews in concert. Even like, even Brandi Carlos Festival, Nicholas is like, I keep saying like, I want to go. And he's like, you would not enjoy yourself. That is not your scene. Again, previous point. I like a tight schedule and those festivals, man, I don't know. And there's just a lot of open-ended jamming. I mean, I'm speaking from complete ignorance. I've never actually been to one. Maybe I should try at least one, but I just, mm, I don't know. It's not for me.
1: This is very unlike you to have rolled out something that you've not done. I know. That's not your typical mo. Chad and I really enjoy going to festivals. We don't do it very often because children. Right. But we really enjoy it because the people watching is phenomenal. I think you just roll in knowing I am older than the average person here most of the time, and Mm -hmm. that is fine. I have packed my little chair Mm -hmm. because my back is going to (laughs) require a chair at this point in my life and I'm just going to take it all in we love it listen I just like to sit outside that's why I like baseball I like to sit outside while a thing is unfolding in front of me that I can half pay attention to I think it's one of life's greatest pleasures Uh, and I really don't care what kind of music I also believe you need to see Dave Matthews because the musicianship you don't care what kind of music
0: I don't understand that
1: I don't I don't care because I just am amazed at people's talents like John Popper from Blues Traveler okay. riffing on that harmonica. Do I am I a fan of the harmonica? No. But I think it is amazing to see what he can do and to just watch that happen. Jewel took a minute last night, took a beat to show us her yodeling skills. I'm not a yodeler. I don't, I'm not gonna go like buy an album of yodeling, but I thought it was fabulous. And I could have taken like another oh, 10 well, I minutes. I to or have so. some
0: like I need to have a song or two that I recognize and mm-hmm. sing along to. You
1: would have a song or two with Dave Matthews. Come on. I cannot say,
0: but there's so much jamming. Maybe there's a spectrum of jamming available to me on the festival circuit, and I could lean into a lower end of jamming.
1: You should come to River Bend to see Dave Matthews. It's so fun there. It's a really, really fun concert.
0: I know people that are very dedicated to the Dave Matthews situation.
1: You will, will get a contact it. high. I cannot... Keep you from the the smell. I'm not opposed to that, but, but like it's it is so fun. I will think about it. I will. Co- They're so talented. It. They love what they do. I love to see people who. It's how I felt about what's his name, Chris Steyerwald at the January sixth <laughs> hearing, talking about all the data. What love, a tie-in, Beth. I love people who love what they do. It just brings <laughs> me a lot of joy.
0: What a tie-in. Well, thank you, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. I very much look forward to hearing about people's concert experiences, which I'm sure we will. We will be back with you on Friday to discuss the third week of hearings with the January 6th committee. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Community Engagement Manager.
0: Dante Lima is the composer and performer of
1: our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holiday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis Kasling Barry Kaufman. Molly
0: Kors. The Creeps. Lori Lidau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley.
2: Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff,
1: Sarah Ralph,
2: Jeremy Sequoia,
1: Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Yuvaline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Katherine Vollmer, Amy Whited, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.
0: Yeah, I mean, Griffin is. It's funny. I think he's more like. Oh. Why did that throw that at me? I don't know. I'm so sorry.
1: Jeez. The closet closet shelf threw a mouse at Sarah. I'm sorry. Dylan.